Awesome. So, um, for those of you that don't know what's going on, uh, we have been in the book of Joshua now for, this is our 93rd message in the book of Joshua, praise God. Um, we are in Joshua chapter number 13. Um, we've done an extensive walkthrough through the book of Joshua. And what we find with the book of Joshua, it is an incredible source of pictures spiritual pictures for you to understand, you and I to understand, how to apply principles and concepts God wants us to understand using a backdrop of a biblical story like Joshua. So what we're doing, this series that we started actually two weeks ago, was called An Ungodly Inheritance. And we had that first message was in Joshua chapter 13, verses 15 through 23. And what happened in that was this is where God was spotlighting the distribution of the land that would be received by the children of Reuben. There are two and a half tribes that made a separate or a, uh, they, they asked for land that was not within Canaan. It was actually outside of Canaan. And what we saw was as that introduction in Joshua 13, verse 15, there was a phrase that we saw, which we've seen similar phrases up to this point, which is, and Moses gave. Okay, this is really, really important to understand. And Moses gave, and you'll see this continually show up as God references this this two and a half tribes. You'll see Reuben, the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and you'll see half the tribe of Manasseh. And what we saw was that inheritance as they were going to receive in that first message. We noticed with 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 Reuben, we wanted to understand kind of the motivations behind the choices that they'd made. So we wanted to understand their character. So what we did was we did a character study on their forefather, which is Reuben. And through that process, we noticed some interesting things, that their offspring had the very same traits and made the same kind of choices that he did. Remarkably, we saw what Reuben revealed to us. Three different things we learned. We looked at the strengths of Reuben. We looked at the weaknesses of Reuben. And then we looked at, ultimately, the legacy. And we saw a correlation between what he did and what and what they did. And so our first focus was on the strength of the tribe of Reuben. What we found was, as we were studying through it, we noticed that he was conscientious, okay? He was merciful. We saw that he had leadership skills. We saw also that he was, had a, a certain level of responsibility. Ultimately, what we realized about Reuben was the fact that he wanted to do the right thing. He really wanted to be that guy who stepped up and did the right thing. But unfortunately, when placed into a situation where it was potentially uncomfortable or difficult to do the right thing, what we found was that he was very easy to forego what it was to do right and do what was convenient for him. And it showed this transverse trans transitioned us over to his weaknesses, right? So internally, he had this desire to honor God. Internally, he had a desire to honor his father. But unfortunately, inevitably, when put into a situation where he had to make a choice, he inevitably chose his will over, over their will. Reuben inevitably chose always having a heart to do what was right ultimately in the situation for him. And so what we saw was this ultimately would also be his, his legacy, what he would leave behind. Sadly, his descendants will have the same mindset they will willfully choose what they wanted over what God had specifically chosen for them and, in fact, had prepared and protected for them. And so as we move forward in this message series, today we'll be in number two of an ungodly inheritance. And we're going to look at the Reubenites' cohorts in this decision that they made to not be in the promised land, but be near the promised land. Remember, the, blessed, the, the promised land was where they were going to receive the blessings of God. There are lots of Christians that get right beside the blessings of God, but don't actually step over the commitment to really honor the Lord. And so what we find here is this is what's pictured for us with this group. And this, their first group we're going to talk to, Reuben's buddies, are the Gadites, okay? This is his brother. And Gad, we're going to find out today, 
is, is got some of the similarities to Reuben. There are things that they, that they share. They both had a knowledge of God's desire for them. They knew, and they had knowledge of not only that, what God had prepared for them, what God's plan was for them. He had set this aside, and yet they were going to reject what God had prepared and promised them in order to fulfill their own selfish desire, desires. Understand, examining the tribe of Gad, what we're going to do is we're going to relate and use the same categories. We'll look at strengths, we're going to look at weaknesses, and then we're going to look at ultimately their legacy. And what we'll find here is this um, principle that they're struggling with, this issues of the, of the Gadites. We're going to see very similar things to you and I, things that are taking place in our culture even as we speak, where people who claim to be children of God will struggle with fighting for what's right biblically and what is right in their own eyes. And here is a struggle that we all deal with, and we're going to see mirrored for us in these Gadites in our message, An Ungodly Inheritance Part 2. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to, again, be relating those same exact character traits, looking at Gad, the son of Gad. We're going to be looking at him and also the Gadites, the references that we can find, because there's very limited information on these guys to get a picture of the strengths, weaknesses, and their legacy. Ultimately, why are we doing that? Because our desire today is to understand their motivations, to get insight to reason why they make the choices that they make, and understand also to get an insight into ourselves and the choices that we make. Because what we find with the Israelites, the Israelites are pictures of the individual believer in Scripture. So when we look at the topsy-turvy choices that they live and the examples of their lives, many times we can directly correlate that to our own walk with God, where we have good days and bad days. So let's get into it. Let's pray real quick, and then we'll jump into our scripture. Thank you, Lord, for today. Thank you, Lord, for this body. Thank you, Lord, for this time that we have set aside specifically, Lord, to, to dig into your word. I thank you, Father, for what you have shown me, uh, Lord, as we've been studying through the book of Joshua, Lord, for a good while now. And Lord, I'm so thankful that it just is continually coming to life, that there's different angles and adversities and, and things that we need to have insight into, Lord, to help us in our daily walk and help us to be better in this service to you that you've given us to live. And Lord, I pray that you would be with us. You know, you have, I'm confident that you've spoken to me, Lord. I have confidence in that truth. Uh, but Lord, I'm asking you now that, uh, that you would speak through me, that I would get out of the way. I know the biggest hindrance to this message is my flesh. And so I ask you, Lord, to bind it. I ask you, Lord, to help me to deny my own thoughts, uh, my own whatever idiotic things might come out of my mouth. Lord, would you please stop them? And Lord, would you just let your spirit take a hold of this service and would you guide me and guide us through your word in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's jump into Joshua chapter 13, verses 24 through 28. It says, And Moses gave inheritance unto the tribe of Gad, even unto the children of Gad, according to their families. And I'm going to butcher some of these names of these places, but just bear with me. Um, it says, And their coasts were Jazer, uh, Jazir, I'm not sure, and all the cities of Gilead, and half the land of the children of Ammon, and the, unto Eror, and, and, and it, that is before Rabbah, and from Heshbon, and Ramath Mizpah, and Betonim, and from Mahanaim under the borders of Debir and in the valley of Beth Aram and Beth Nimrah and Succoth and Zaphon, the rest of the kingdom of Sahon, king of Heshbon, Jordan and his border, even under the edge of the sea of Chinnereth. On this other side, Jordan, eastward. This is the inheritance of the children of Gad after their families, the villages and of the cities and their villages. 
Now, we have broken down the territories, and we've done a lot of extensive study on this so far. So what we're going to do again is we're looking at the motivations of what caused them to want to receive this. Again, we see God laying out the same narrative related to the distribution of this inheritance. God makes it abundantly clear that this was not his plan. The same phrase that opened in verse number 15 that and Moses gave. We see it show up here as he introduced the tribe of Reuben. We see it introduced the tribe of Gad. This is the 11th time that God has reflected and shown us that this is not his choice. This was Moses' choice. The Gadites' inheritance is spelled out for us in verses 25 through 27. I'll read them real quickly again to the best of my ability. And their coast was Jazer and all the cities of Gilead and the half land of the children of Ammon unto Eror, that is before Rabbah, and from Heshbon under Ramoth Mizpah and Betanem and Mahananam and under the border of the of Debir in the valley of Betharam and Beth Nimrah and Succoth. I would not do well if I lived in the neighborhood of these places. <laughs> Where do you live? By Betharam Nimrah um, and Zephon. The rest of the kingdom of Sohan, the king of Heshbon, uh, Jordan and his border, even unto the edge of the Sea of Chinnereth. And so we have a map that I want to throw up there on the screen on the other side, Jordan. And what you'll see is you'll see that when it talks about Chinnereth. Chinnereth is actually right here. Okay, so this is, this is the border. This is the land of Gad right here. And that actually is going to be in the New Testament. That's the Sea of Galilee. But you see it listed as Chinnereth there. And look at this. They're bordering all the way down the Jordan River. Look at the Reubenites. Guess what they get? The Salt Sea, right? The Salt Sea, that is a dead source of water. So interestingly enough, that's some really, really good territory that they have, that they have received. So as I mentioned in our prior messages, the origins of this inheritance are absolutely foundational for us to understand the, the messages as we move forward. Remember, God's intention for was from Abraham all the way to Joshua was consistent. It was always always that the 12 tribes would receive the land of Canaan. We looked at those verses in Genesis and Exodus last time. But then it reached a point in time, right up to the time when they got right, when they were going to be returning back in. This is the end of the 40 years. The, 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 the tribes have now returned. And Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh get this idea. And at the very last minute, they have a change of plans. And this is what we hear in Numbers 32, verses 1 through 5. Now the children of Reuben... And the children of Gad had a very great multitude of cattle. And when they saw the land of Jezir uh, and the land of Gilead, that behold, the place was a place for cattle. The children of Gad and the children of Reuben came and spake unto Moses and unto Eleazar the priest and unto the princes of the congregation, saying, Adaroth and Dibon and Jezir and, and Nimrah and Heshbon and Elia and Shebam and Nebo and Nibon and beyond, even the country which the Lord smoked before the congregation of Israel. It is a land for cattle, and thy servants have cattle. Wherefore? Because of that knowledge, said they, if we have found grace in thy sight, let this land be given unto thy servants for a possession and bring us not over Jordan. We don't want what God has for us. And then Moses sealed the deal. Right after that, he says, basically, hey, listen, as long as you guys will help us fight to win this land, that's this land of Canaan, you guys can get what you want. You see, the Gilead or the Gadites request, we could say their, their desire of their hearts was this, they, they, they desired what they wanted over what God wanted them, wanted for them. And so this is an undeniable fact that God reinforces and, and saves in Scripture. Now we look at that and we go, why is it important for us to understand that? Why is it important for us to know what the two and a half tribes chose to do? Again, remember, they are a picture of the individual believer, the Israelites as a body. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6 says this, 
Now these things were our examples, okay? What you'll find, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is recounting the journey of the Israelites. And he's telling us, hey, listen, there's a principle I'm telling you right now. These Old Testament things, these Old Testament stories that are all historical events that really took place, they are, in fact, examples for you. They're pictures for you to look back on and learn from their mistakes. Notice what he says. He says, they were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And what happened? They got to that beautiful land that was all beautiful for cows. And they said, you know what? Man, this looks good. They lusted for that land. And they said, you know what, God? We don't have to see what you've got prepared for us because we already know this is better. We want this for ourselves. Do you realize that the things that they are, the evil things that they desire, an evil thing is something that's outside of the will of God. There's God's will and there's outside of God's will. So we know for them there's the wilderness and there's Canaan. God made it very, very clear. You're to cross the Jordan River. That's your delineating factor. That's the thing. You're going to cross the Jordan to make your way of escape out of the wilderness and into the land of flowing with milk and honey that I have set aside for you. Here's this beautiful picture for you and I surrendering to God's will for our lives, walking in fellowship with God in the land of Canaan. The wilderness is where the, all that temptation and all those struggles are. They dealt with it for 40 years. And then God brought them and said, you know what? I'll make a way. He parted the Jordan River, and they could have crossed over and chose what he had for them, but they chose differently. And see, for you and I, it's a choice very similar to that. Righteousness and unrighteousness, right? Holiness and unholiness, good or evil, being in God's will or out of God's will. Now, we know that their choice was outside of God's will. They lusted after evil things. Then Paul continues in verses 11 through 13. Now, all these things happened unto them, listen, for examples, they're examples, and they are written for our admonition. The word admonition means warning. He's listening. The reason why I'm saving this, the reason why I'm having telling you this story, and the reason why it's recorded in the Old Testament is to warn you not to fall into the same trap upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, because I warned you, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Pride, pride, Proverbs 16, 18 talks about the pride Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Then verse 13, this is, There hath no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. This is something that all humanity deals with. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape. For them it was the Jordan River, that ye may be able to bear it. God will make a, make a way. But does God put, allow temptations to come into our life? Oh, absolutely. Does God allow adversity to come into our life? Absolutely. But the whole thing is, will we turn to Him through that adversity? That's the thing, that He will not make a way of escape. Guess what? He is the way of escape. Have you ever just felt a weight in your life that was so heavy that you felt like you were going to be crushed? You were overwhelmed by it emotionally, spiritually. You felt like this is, this is the end of the world. I am hopeless. But what does the Bible say? Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. Man, we finally turn ourselves to the Lord. And God lifts us up out of the miry clay, dusts us off, and, and straightens us, puts us back on the right course. God becomes a source of hope because we turn to Him because of adversity. So adversity is one of the tools God uses to shape us, to change us. God doesn't want us to make similar mistakes. God wants us to learn from their mistakes. As parents, we want our kids to learn from our mistakes. Just trust me. Don't do that. Just trust me. <laughs> I, I have tried that, and it did not work. And some of your kids are going to go, 
thanks, man. Good to go. I'm never going to do it. Wonderful. And other kids are like, I'm going to let you know how it turns out. <laughs> hey, we're all in somewhere in that mix, right? But the, the, the reality is God wants us to learn. And so to help us not follow their bad examples, he records their stories in the Bible so that we can understand this truth. Let, let's, like, we, let, uh, let, uh, he lets us know that the tribe of Gad, right? He wants us to know him and look at the example of his life and the choices of his offspring. And right, so as we're going to do today, we're going to look at, that, at uh, Jacob's seventh son, right? That's, that's that son, Gad. Now, there are two men in the Bible that are named Gad. You'll see another one when you study scripture. And you'll find, actually, if you do a, a word search, you'll find Gad, who actually is a man who was a prophet who served David. Now, that's not who we're going to be talking about. So we don't use those references. We only use the ones directly related to Jacob's son. So there, um, in this aspect of understanding who David is or who, or who Jacob is and Joshua, or Gad is, he's in there somewhere, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 30, verses 9 through 11, and this is going to be the story of his birth, okay? It says, when Leah saw that she had left bearing, she took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her Jacob to wife, okay? So we remember Leah, right? There was Leah and there was Rachel. Leah thought that her times of having children had passed. She was convinced that, listen, I'm no more of any use. So what we understand is that her, to not lose her status as a provider of children, she's going, okay, listen, if I can't have kids anymore, then at least my servant can have kids for me. So I'm going to use her as a surrogate. Her name was Zilpah. Now, that is not what God would have her, had her to do. Now, this is an unfortunate choice that she makes. Zilpah, now God's going God's gonna to use it. But unfortunately, what we find is the fact that Leah did not know um, that one day, I mean, God's going to give her more children. In fact, that's coming. But with Leah and Rachel, there was, there was this issue of them doing the same thing. Not only Leah's going to do it, but Rachel's going to do it. And they're doing what Abraham and Sarah did. Remember, Abraham and Sarah, when they were in doubt of being able to have a child, that promised child, Isaac, was going to come. And Sarah uh, came to Abraham with a plan. I've got a way to help God. You're going to lay with Hagar, my servant. And that's how God will provide the child. And that's the birth of Ishmael. Ishmael is the, Sarah, or is the forefather of the enemies of God to this day. And it ties into something we've talked about before, which is the principle of sowing and reaping. What we sow, we will reap. Whatever we plant, we're going to get back. So the Bible warns in Galatians chapter 6, verse number 7 and 8, it says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall reap life everlasting. So we hear this principle, we go, okay. But what we find is the fact that this very principle is being sown, was sown by Abraham and Sarah, and then guess what? It shows up again in their and their grandchildren. And so we see this principle. Now what we find with Leah is the fact that she was not done having kids. She had four at that point in time uh, whenever, uh, when, that, when, when Gad is born. But we'll find that she'll actually have two more sons. Um, we're going to throw up a, map, uh, a layout for you in a minute and show it to you all of it. So she had Issachar and Zebulun after, after the kids from the, from the servants. And it says, verse 10, And Zilpah, Leah's maid, bare Jacob a son. And Leah said, A troop cometh. And she called his name Gad. Now, uh, if, you, if you look at a commentary, if you look anything or, or definitions, what will happen is you can look up online and find out the names, what names mean. Um, and it's the word Gad translates as troop. But most translators that I found, most people that connotated or gave it a, a meaning, they said it means good fortune. 
And I was like, well, okay, well, I'm not sure how they get that. So I looked up and I read every single reference where the name Gad shows up and looked at the conference, the, the, uh, the, the context of how it was being used. And then the, the word troop, and I read every one of context of how they were used. I did not see good fortune. I saw a unified force. That's what it appeared to be. Now, that's a side note, but remember, our goal is to define the Bible with the Bible, right? We don't go to outside sources. If you really want to know what God's trying to teach you, use the Scripture. The Bible talks about comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. So that's what we do. We use uh, the Bible to define things for us. So as we work through this, and when we get to the description that as, as Jacob is going to address his son at his deathbed, what we're going to see is that that, that definition of a unified force kind of fits the way he describes and talks about him. So we also understand that knowing that the relationship that was going on in this home, okay, Jacob and Leah, there was not a lot of love there, okay? But what we do know is that Jacob desperately loved Rachel. He loved Rachel. This was her sister. And so what's happened now is because of this sense of feeling as if she's unworthy, Leah is desperate. She's, she's doing what she's doing out of a desperation to make sure that her only thing that she feels like she brings to the marriage is the fact that she can provide kids. So this is why this, is, this opportunity comes that she's going to bring Zilpah into the mix. But what we find is at the end, she will give him six children, six boys, and she's going to actually deliver him one daughter personally. And so it's in this competitive environment that Gad is born. Okay, So this is, there's a lot of Stuff, there's turmoil taking place. I know none of you guys can relate to a family that has any kind of turmoil in it or any kind of underpinnings or undercurrents of emotion that's foreign to us, but in this situation, they have this. And so what's happening is we can only imagine the impact that this undercurrent of emotion might have on these boys, this sibling rivalry that takes place. Now, we know that it will manifest itself, right? It manifests itself in the situation with Joseph that we studied last, last time as we talked about the fact that, listen, there was a betrayal of Joseph, all based upon a jealousy. So we look at Leah and Rachel. Guess what? There is a jealousy there. And so what we find is many times parents transfer bad habits or things that we don't want to transfer to our children because of our own behaviors. And we think that it's isolated, that they're not impacted by it. But guess what? They are impacted by it. And we can directly see it happening here. Jacob had unwittingly created a contentious environment. He had clear favoritism of Joseph. Even after his family will be safely in Egypt, when they're in the land of Goshen, guess what? Jacob's favoritism is going to be easy to pick out, easy to spot. What you'll find when we study the Bible, you'll see that Joseph had two sons. He had Ephraim and he had Manasseh. And what you'll find is you work your way through. Now, God, in verse number 49 of Genesis 49, this is where, where Jacob's going to set down his boys and he's going to tell them their inheritance. But if you go to verse chapter number 48, chapter 48 is all all one thing. It is Jacob setting aside, taking Joseph's two boys and blessing them. He specifically pulls them aside and blesses their kids, but doesn't bless other kids. So again, that favoritism is continuing on. And then we get to verse chapter number 49, and now Jacob is laying out the inheritance. He's explaining what was coming. And when you remember when we talked about Reuben, right? We heard about Reuben, and we heard about his strengths and his weaknesses. He was fairly extensive in his, and the way he talked about about Reuben and the way he talked about what Reuben would receive. But then as we start to work our way into this, there's something we're going to notice. I'm going to throw that, that diagram up one more time. 
what we're going to see is the fact that as he's describing, I'm not going to walk through Genesis, I'm going to walk through the order of it with you in Genesis 49, but what's interesting is as he addresses his sons, what he's going to do is the first six he's going to talk to, he'll talk to Reuben, he'll talk to Simeon, then he addresses Levi, then Judah, then Zebulun, and then Issachar. These are Leah's, Leah's children. Then he's going to address Zilpah and Bilhah, their children. He addresses Dan, then Gad, then Asher, then Naphtali. So there's a division that takes place. And what's something very interesting as you read it is there's a very extensive breakdown or sort of a, a connection with each of these boys all the way up to Dan. But then when you get to Gad and you get to Asher and you get to Naphtali, what's very interesting is outside of, outside of Dan, there is a very distinct shift that takes place. There's a disconnect. Okay, Genesis 49, we're going to pick up in verses 19 through 21. Here's is what he says about Gad. Gad, a troop shall overcome him, but he shall overcome at the last. Okay, so he's going to be victorious in battle. Out of Asher, his bread shall be fat, and he shall yield royal dainties. Well, he's going to be blessed in his provisions. Look at Naphtali. As, Naphtali is in hind, let loose. He giveth goodly words. He's wise in knowledge. So we don't see a lot of information. It's strikingly impersonal in the way that he communicates and qualifies what he's going to do there. So basically what he's telling us is, listen, hey, you know what, Gad? He's going to be tested and he's going to, he's going to come out all right. He's going to persevere. There is a distance here. There's a relational separation, perhaps. I don't know if it's a middle child syndrome because these guys kind of right are in the middle, but there are issues that are struggling within them. So we want to know a little bit more about Gad. How do we find out more of the traits and how is this uh, relationship with his father, what does it turn into in him? So what we do is we then move over and we look in the Bible and we see that Moses will address and bless the tribes of the Gadites. He's going to do that at his, near his death in Deuteronomy 33, 20 through 21. And this is going to give us insight into the Gadites further. Verses 20 through 21. And it says, and of Gad, he said, blessed be he that enlargeth Gad. This is referencing the Lord. He dwelleth as a lion and teareth the arm with the crown of the head. The Gadites were fierce warriors. And he provided the first part for himself because therein a portion of the lawgiver was he seated. So through their efforts, the tribe of Gad would receive the best land. He came with the heads of the people. He executed the justice of the Lord and his judgments with Israel. So they faithfully fought in order for Israel to come to the winning and, and usurping and power over Canaan. Then we get additional details if we go further and we look in 1 Chronicles. Now this is written by Ezra, and Ezra is going to record for us this about the Gadites in service to the king. 1 Chronicles are in service of the Gadites in service to David. In 1 Chronicles 12, verses 14 through 15, it says, These were of the sons of Gad, captains of the hosts. One of the least was over a hundred, and the greatest over a thousand. Okay, so these men were leaders in David's army. These are they that went over Jordan in the first month when it had overflown all his banks, and they put to flight all them of the valleys, both toward the east and toward the west. So these were faithful soldiers. They were powerful warriors, and they fought for God. So we get this interesting aspect. If we take what Moses says, we take what Jacob says, we take what Ezra says, and we include what we understand about their family dynamics, now we get a pretty good picture of the strengths and weaknesses, as well as the legacy of Gad. Let's first look at the strengths. In Jacob's blessing, he points to Gad being tenacious and fearless. Verse 19 said, A Gad, a troop, shall overcome him, but he shall overcome at the last. 
He will not quit until he is victorious. In Moses' description, he describes Gad as being as fierce as a lion. He dwelleth as a lion and teareth the arm with the crown of the head. What this is referencing is talking about the arm is the strength. This is the physical strength. The crown of the head is the mind. He's saying, listen, these guys were a tenacious, fearsome warriors. These dangerous in battle. Then Ezra tells us that the Gadites were not just warriors, but they were in fact leaders. Notice what it says. Captains of the hosts. One of the least was over 100 and the greatest over 1,000. So these men, these Gadites, had the ability to inspire other men. And we know it was, listen, their military prowess that gained them recognition. It's their very identity. They were fighters. And I think we all know people that are fighters. You might be sitting in here right now. The kind of folks that people go, you know what? Just, it's not, it's not, it's not worth it. It's just don't open that can of worms, dude. It's just not going to be good when you get that thing going, right? Who knows people like that? Who is a person like that, right? <laughs> Maybe we're talking about ourselves, right? So recognition, right? The fact is there's, there are some people out there that listen, and, and fighting is not always a bad thing. Sometimes we need to fight. Sometimes there are things that are right that must be stood up for. What about protecting our families? Boy, it's okay to fight for your family. Fight for your family. Fight for your kids, right? It's okay to fight to defend the truth of God's Word. There are liars all over this world that take God's Word. And the Bible uses the word, it says, and it says, and they rest the Scriptures, W-R-E-S-T. That means wrestle. They take God's Word and they twist it and they shape it to get what they want it to say instead of just letting the Bible say what the Bible says. People use this phrase all the time. What does it mean? What does it mean? How about what does it say? That's it. Let God's Word speak for itself. We don't need. The Bible says it's not, in for, it's not for private interpretation. That's what Peter warns us about. He said, listen, it's not to be privately interpreted. You don't go to the outside of the Bible to understand it. Use the Bible to interpret itself. It is a self-defining book, and it is incredible. The more you realize the, the power of the Word of God, the more it will come to life because it does open itself up to us. So we look at this aspect of, of, of standing and fighting. We're supposed to oppose evil. How do we do that? With good, right? You don't oppose hatred with hatred. You oppose hatred with love. Notice what it says in Romans 12, verse 21. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. That's how we do it. Overcome evil with good. And then listen to the picture he gives us in verse number 20. But listen to this. This is this in Romans 12, 20. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. People go, what in the world? That sounds horrible, heaping coals of fire in his head. Why would you want to That sounds dangerous. Let me explain. In the first century, what would happen is if you were making camp, right? They didn't have matches at the time. So if you were going to make camp at the end of your camp and you were breaking camp, you would take embers from the fire. And what they would do is they would have the sand. They would take their hand and they would press it down. They put sand on their head and they'd take those coals and they'd put them on their head and they would wrap it. So those coals, those embers would stay warm. So while they're traveling, it would afford them heat, but it was also a way to safely transport those embers. So when they got to their next camp, they would set them on the ground and, and relight the fire, right? That was a very, very important thing. Fire was life. 
And so what it's saying here is, listen, when you do something kind to someone who is, who's, who's hurt you, and he says, like it says, you know, he says, uh, if your enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink. Because when you do this, it's like giving him your coals and saying, hey, I know we're all getting ready to travel through the cold. Here, take the coals from my fire and put them on your head. And when that person's walking through the cold and they feel that warmth on their head. It's this reminder of why in the world did that guy that I treated so badly turn around and give me his most valuable thing. Whoa, it weighs on him, right? And that's what happens when you and I, when someone mistreats us and 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 they expect a fight, right? Someone comes at you, man, they're expecting, boom, because that's the way the world is. But when we don't respond that way, when our response is unprecedented and it does not make sense, what it causes them to do is reevaluate. What in the world? Why did they do that? That doesn't make any sense. And when people are in a moment of introspection and they're wondering what's going on in their own hearts, you know what? That's when God grips people. And so what God's saying is, hey, listen, take advantage of the fact that your enemy, when they're mean to you, you can subvert that destruction. Instead of feeding into it, you can actually fight it with kindness. You can help to reach their heart because that's ultimately what this thing's all about. It's not about winning a victory. You know, people want to get into arguments and, 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 and fight over uh, philosophies and politics and all this stuff. It's not about winning an argument. It's about winning a heart. We're not going to win people by judging them. We're not going to win people by angrily hating them or waving a sign and telling them that they're, that they're going to hell and that they're disgusting and they're horrible. Listen, we stand upon what is right, but we must love people. We can hate sin and love people. That's the way Jesus functioned. That's the way the disciples functioned. That's what we're called to do. But we live in a world that's become religious, and because of religious um, persuasions or religious identities, people have become very judgmental of the world around them. And instead of ministering to the world, they separate themselves from it. They push people away, and they call them Sinners. Well, guess what? We're all sinners. Up, up, but for the grace of God, go I, right? Because if I told you all the things I've done in my life, you go, dang, God, that dude's telling us. He's not qualified. Listen to all that stuff. Hey, under the blood, praise God. Praise God. Because I think none of us want to lay out our dirty laundry. But you know what? God says, hey, I saw it all, and guess what? I still love you. How awesome is that? And he loves them too. That's not part of my message, but let me get back to it. We find where I'm at. I don't even know where I'm at. Let's see if we can figure it out. Um, okay, here we go. So this throws them into a loop, right? When we're, when we're kind to somebody who does not uh, deserve it from us. And understand, God wants to draw their hearts. He wants to, to reach them. And so what it comes down to this is many times the, the, the struggle or the fight that we're going to be dealing with is not with others, okay? Many times the struggle, the fight that we're going to have is against our own nature, okay? Because we know how we want to respond, our flesh instantly is prepared to get into it, man. We're ready to rock and roll. But what we find is the fact that all of us are very much, we're like the Gadites. The Gadites, we're fighters. Now, whether or not you want to admit that or not, we're all fighters at some level. Because when it comes down to this, whatever you believe to be right, you will be willing to stand. If it's for your family, right? If it's an issue, something that you it's near and dear to your heart, and someone defies it, you will stand against that wrong. You will, you will fight. But see, this introduces us to the weaknesses of the Gadites, though they are great warriors. And you see, we can clearly see that Gad Gad has no problem fighting. 
fighting for what he believes in. Listen, it seems that he will stand against anyone or anything. But when his brother Joseph was literally on the line of getting ready to be killed for nothing more than jealousy, you know what? He said and did nothing. It wasn't about honoring what was right. It was honoring what was right for him. This is the issue, right? So this tells us that Gad is, again, he's more concerned with not with what's, with, what's, with what's right, but what's right for him specifically. It is self-serving. This introduces to his first weakness, which is selfishness. Not only was this evident in how he treated Joseph, but it's also revealed to us when we were in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 21. It says, and he provided the first part for himself because there in a portion of the lawgiver was he seated. Now, I want you to get an idea of kind of what it is that he received. Let's look at that map again. So we see here, this borderland here, this, this is some of the richest soil that they have. You've got the break here. Literally, Reuben has about, I don't know, well, whatever that, that's all the Jordan River he has access to. The Jordan River is incredibly rich. It runs all the way up here. All of this is Gad's land, and he has access to the Sea of Galilee. So it is the prime, prime territory. Not only was he selfish, but this excerpt also reveals to us that the other weakness that he had, which was his willingness to, to justify his selfishness. He justifies what he does. It says that he provided the first part for himself, but notice the word. He provided the first part for himself because, why did he do it? Because there in a portion of the lawgiver was he seated. He was placed in a position of responsibility, and guess what? He deserved it. He deserved it. And what we find is the fact that what does God say about godly leadership? What's the role of a leader? Is it to look out for what we want? Is it to look out for how we can personally gain? No. Notice this, Mark 10 verses 43 through 45. Jesus speaks and says this himself, and whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered to unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Philippians 2.3 says this, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Humility. A servant's heart. The book of Mark reveals Jesus Christ. When you go through the Gospels, the first Gospel, Matthew reveals Jesus Christ as the King of the Jews. When you then go to Matthew, then you go to Mark, which you find then Mark. Mark reveals him as a servant. When you go to Luke, it reveals him as a man. That's where you see the birth story that takes place. And when you get to the book of John, it starts off in the beginning. And it references and shows us that Jesus is God. Those four Gospels tell the same stories, but from different perspectives, teaching us four different things. So we understand that he's justifying why it was that he lobbied for the prime land for himself. Look, we can certainly tell that Gad is not like Reuben. The Bible described it. When Jacob described it, Reuben, he said he was unstable as water. Unstable as water. We see Gad is determined. He's dedicated to accomplishing his desire. Unfortunately, his desire is to fulfill himself above anyone, even God, which leads us to his legacy. You see, the pattern he established and passed on was one of self-fulfillment. Just look at what his descendants chose to do. Now, uh, see, bad habits, unfortunately, like we mentioned before, they're passed down many times and not even planned to be passed down. 
When my wife and I, um, when our children were little, um, we, my wife did, was like, we're not getting a dog, we're not getting a dog. I was like, come on, the kids want a dog, 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 dog. Eventually, she wore, we wore her down, and we got a dog. And Bailey was introduced into our life. Bailey was wonderful. She was, my daughter, Riley used to describe her this way. She was, um, she was, what were the three? Golden Retriever. When she was little, she said she's Golden Retriever. She's Eagle. She was Beagle. Eagle. Uh, she's Golden Retriever and Eagle. What was the other one? Was that just the two? Maybe it was just the two. But I remember Golden Retriever and Eagle is what she used to always say. So she was part Beagle. So if you've ever had Beagle before, they like to howl, right? So we moved into a house, and we happened to be near the fire station. And guess what? Man, oh, man, every time a sound, yeah, just unbelievable. Howling, 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 howling. And then what happened was we got another dog, Buddy. And Buddy came to live with us. And he was nice and quiet, no problems. But after you watch Bailey for a while, guess what? Every time she started to howl, he would howl. And then we got another dog after Bailey passed. And then guess what Bailey taught, or guess what uh, Buddy taught that dog? To howl. We're like four generations away now. <laughs> And every time an ambulance or anything goes by our house, everybody erupts, man. It's just like a haunted choir. It's like, everybody's howling their brains out. And they all learn it. And if, a dog, if any dog comes and stays with any pretty times, guess what? That dog's going to learn. They're going to howl when they hear the sirens. And so this inadvertently was passed down. Bailey didn't intend to have every dog we ever had from that day forward to howl. But guess what? That was the result. And many times... Parents do not want to impart bad habits to their children, but because we're short-sighted and because we're so self-absorbed so many times in the emotional moments that we're in, we lose sight of what it is that we are imparting to our kids, things that we would never want to give them. We would never teach them and say, hey, listen, this is how you deal with adversity. Hey, when you're upset, this is how you handle it. You know, when you're frustrated, this is what you should do. We would never do that, but yet we do it just simply not by telling them we're going to teach them, but by simply living it in front of them. Does that make sense? So Bailey had no idea what impact she was going to have. And because of the legacy of the forefathers of Gad, when given the option of receiving what the Lord had for them in the promised land of Canaan, the Gadites selfishly chose what they wanted for themselves, and they even gave a justification of why they made the choice that they did. Remember back in Numbers 32, verse 40 through 5, it says this, Even the country with the Lord smote before the congregation of Israel is a land for cattle. And here's the justification. And thy servants have cattle. Hey, we're just, we're just telling you why we're doing this. We have a good reason for defying you, God, and here's our justification. Wherefore, said they, if we have found grace in thy sight, let this land be given unto thy servants for a possession, and bring us not over Jordan. How many of us have justified our sins before God? We do it and we go, but you understand, right? I only said that. I only did this because, because, because. But understood, unfortunately, God sees right through our justifications. He sees our hearts. So they would ultimately fight for what they wanted, not for God's will being done. This is the story of Gad and their descendants. This is, we would call it biblically, their testimony, right? This is their story. And the question after all of that is, are we like the Gadites? Are we literally fierce warriors who, man, have the strength and the courage, the determination to fight till the victory is won as long as in the end it serves us? This is the question. Because unfortunately, all of us are selfish by nature. It's just who we are. But God's telling us that we need to be selfless. 
that we fight for what's right, not for the way we see it, but for the way that he sees it. For you see people fight for and against things every single day. Hey, political parties, back up, watch out. Here they come, they come the fists are coming out, man. People are ready to roll. Sports teams, gracious me. Fights at sports teams. You hear stories in, in places like uh, in South America or even England and stuff like that or, or in, or in, um, in, uh, in, in like uh, the Latin cultures. Brawls fake breaking out at sporting events where people are murdered, killed. It's unbelievable. People will fight for sporting events. How about vaccination mandates? Oh, buddy. People are ready to go to war over masks and you name it, man. They'll stand for that, buddy. They will fight all day long. But when it comes to standing for God, Listen, fighting evil by courageously standing against it, many of us tend to shy away. You know what? I don't, I don't want to get in the middle of all that. I'm just going to step away. And the reason why our culture is where it is today is because churches have been doing that for generations. And instead of standing what was against what was wrong, they chose it was easier to step back. And you know why? Because standing up, doing the right thing, unfortunately, many times can cost us something that we treasure, like our comfort, our image, our reputation, maybe even our employment. Not because we did something ungodly, but because, in fact, we were godly. God's calling us to rise up. God's calling us to stand against what's wrong. Not that we're to go and judge the world. We're to love the world. But we must stand our ground in order to love them. We must have hard conversations with people and help them to see the truth. You won't argue someone's political view away, but you can win their heart through Christ and let the Spirit of God change their view. Because I was raised in a liberal, liberal environment. Every liberal view that I stand against today, I used to absolutely herald to the world. I was bold and I was in your face, man. And you know what? Once God saved me, I was like, how in the world? How in the world could I have seen the world that way? Because the truth of God's word reveals what's right and what's wrong. The Bible says to be friend of the world is to be the enemy of God. I was raised as an enemy of God. And I vowed in my heart that I didn't want to be that person anymore. That I want to honor the Lord. And we all get to make that choice every single day. Will we do what's godly? Or will we do what's ungodly? Again, this is a, an ungodly inheritance. They're receiving what looked good. Visually, it looked spectacular. It was beautiful, but it was outside of God's will. Understand, it's our, God, our job is to stand. Because understand, 2 Timothy 3.12 says this, Yea, and all that would live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That just comes with the territory. If you're willing to stand for what's right, you will face adversity. That's just the way it is. That doesn't mean we're going to be constantly under attack. But listen, it doesn't mean that there's a, there's a tension in our life to want to reach the world. Man, it does, does it affect your peace to go, you know what? I realize that when I go out of this house, I'm not just going to isolate myself and walk through and do what I need to do and not talk to anybody, but I'm going to lift my head up. I'm going to be a light amongst the world. I'm going to have tracks ready. And if I talk to somebody, you know what I'm going to do? At the very least, I'm going to put a track in their hand and tell them that God loves them. And no matter what they say to me, I'm going to say, you know what? Hey, who knows their story? Listen, there are going to be people you'll meet that you're going to talk to about God, and they're going to come back with every bit of vehement hatred they can. Wham! Not because of you. Not because of God. It's because some idiot 
claiming to be a Christian, did something ungodly, treated them in a wrong way, did not follow a Christian principle. A lot of people want to claim to be Christians, but they're not Christians. You might be saved, but to be a Christian means to be Christ-like. And there are a lot of people in this world today that claim Christianity by title alone, but do not live it. When you go to the book of, when you go to the book of Acts, you find that the Bible says they were first called Christians at Antioch. It was earned. They did not call themselves Christians. It was called, actually, but they were being made fun of when they were called Christians. They were making fun of them. But the people took it as a badge of courage and said, okay, you see Jesus in me. That's a good thing. How wonderful would it be if we went through our life and we lived in a way that people that did not know our faith just came to us and said, are you a Christian? Not because we wore a shirt that had Christ Christ on it. Not because we did anything to display it, but because our life said it. The way we responded to adversity, the way we loved people, the way that we were kind and gracious and we were Christ-like, they saw it because of the person that we were. We live in a culture where everybody wants to claim it but not live it. The best thing we can do is live it and not claim it. Let other people tag you as a Christian instead of claiming it for yourself. That's not part of my message either. But I felt led to tell you. Because I'm just telling you, man, God has a purpose for this church. A purpose for us. See, how do people get restored, right? How do people get restored? Through this. But if you go to a church that does not teach the real word of God and it's not willing to stand on the truth, you won't be restored. Right. right? They'll put a band-aid over a gunshot wound and send you right back out into the world. And the phrase God gave me for this church years ago was let the bandages, the scars of your life become the bandages for someone else's. God did not allow the pain in your life that you've suffered for no reason. He has a purpose for all things. He never wastes pain. And he wants to take your experience and your brokenness. He wants to heal you. And then take that brokenness and that healing that you've experienced and then minister through you to someone else who comes through the door that's been broken. Because no one can relate to their brokenness like you because you came from the same place. The reason I can help families that have suffered almost total destruction in their marriage, almost lost everything, is because that's our story. But by the grace of God, I had the best marriage that I could think of in the world. As godly as it could possibly be because I have an amazing wife who's forgiving. And you know what? The idea of being able to pour in other people's lives, that's why we're here. This isn't about just surviving. It's about investing in others. Fighting for the truth with love. 2 Timothy 4.7, the Apostle Paul said this as his life came to an end. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. This is what he said. The question is, will we be able to say the same thing? Because we are in a fight every single day. Will we keep the faith? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gift of the word of God. Thank you for the truths that you've shared with us today through this incredible picture looking into the lives of Gad and the Gadites. Thank you for what we've learned about them and learned about ourselves simultaneously. And Lord, I do pray that you'd use today's message to help all of us. Lord, to not fight for what's right for us, but fight for what is truly, biblically right. Help us, Lord, to honor you in the way that we live our lives and the, the things we choose to do 
and the lives that we choose, choose to live. With our heads bowed and with our eyes closed. Look, if you're here today and you say, look, Pastor, I'm, I struggle. I, I'm in the fight every day, but I, I, don't, I find that many times I'm losing ground. I'm not doing what I need to do. I need God to help me to become stronger and standing on the truth. If that's you today, you say, look, Pastor, pray for me. I just need to be a little bit stronger. I need to be more inspired to stand on the truth. Lift your hand and say, look, that's me. Pray for me. Pray for me. Amen. 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 And for those of you here that maybe say, I don't know where I, I, I stand with God. 21 years ago, someone asked me if I knew for sure I was on my way to heaven. And I said, I, I hope so. Based upon the fact that I thought I was a pretty good person. I believed in God. But listen, there's a lot of people that believe in God that are going to go to hell. It's not about believing in God. The devil believes in God. He's not going to heaven. But it's giving our lives to Christ. Realizing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the only way. He said, I am the way and the truth and life. And no man cometh to the Father but by me. If you're going to go by way of religion or anything else or any work that we can do, it's useless. But Christ died on that cross and loves us right in the midst of our miry mess. And he's willing to restore us from brokenness and to heal us from our sin debt. If you've never done that, maybe you were raised in church, maybe you have a religious background and you know all about the Bible, it's great. But have you ever received the gift of God, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord? If you've never received it, if you've never experienced God bringing you from death to life, you have that opportunity today. It is no magic prayer involved. It's just a matter of a broken heart calling out to a loving God. He's ready to receive you even as we sit here today. So their heads bowed and eyes closed. If you want to receive him, if you're online, you're listening to this recorded, I'm going to lead you in prayer. But again, there's no magic to the prayer. There's no ceremony involved. This is God listening and responding to your heart calling out to him. So within your heart and mind, I want you to repeat after me if you want to receive Christ as your savior. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I understand that I have earned destruction that on my own, I'm on my way to hell. I'm so sorry for the way I failed you. I believe that you love me in spite of myself. I believe that you died on the cross for the sins of the world, that you were buried, and Lord, that you raised again for new life, proving that you were God. And Lord, I'm asking you right now in the best way I know how to come into my heart to save my soul and give me a home in heaven. Lord, thank you for saving me. I'll see you in heaven one day. For it's in Jesus' name I pray and give thanks. Amen. Head still.